0: Hello and welcome to the Ways of Not Seeing podcast with me, David Bradford. I'm losing my sight as a result of the genetic condition Retinitis Pigmentosa, or RP, which means that as a result of a small but very annoying error in my genetic code, my retinas are breaking down and I have very patchy peripheral vision, I can't see at all in the dark, and yeah, it's a condition of continual surprises. But on this podcast we like to speak to people at various stages of sight loss about what it's really like Not as a condition of loss and difficulty and darkness, as it's far too often presented in the mainstream but in its full complexity, which is the lived experience. We talk about how people with sight loss often end up doing things in their life that they wouldn't otherwise have dreamed of. And that's certainly true of today's guest, Lizzie Jordan. Lizzie's now in her mid-20s, but when she was just 19, back in 2017, she lost her sight very suddenly. She tells us about that, what happened, her recovery, and everything that she's done since, because Lizzie's achieved at the highest level in sport. And she was a great sport in speaking to us. She has a real no-nonsense resilience, an upbeat character. We spoke over Zoom, and as usual on this podcast, I started by getting Lizzie to tell us a bit about her life and background pre-sight loss. Anyway, enough spoilers from me. Here she is. Hello, Lizzie Jordan, and welcome to the Ways of Not Seeing podcast.
1: Hello, thank you for having me.
0: Well, thanks very much for for agreeing to appear. It's much appreciated. Um, we 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 start this podcast usually, Lizzie. Um, rather than going sort of straight into sight loss and all the related issues, I like to get a sense of sort of people's lives and and you know what their interests are. So, I wondered if you could sort of take us back to you know before sight loss and, and what happened to you. Give give us a sense of sort of like your early life and what what your main interests were, if you, if you would.
1: Yeah, so from a very young age, I was a very keen horse rider. I liked sport. I spent all my weekends at the stables with my friends. It was a great social way of meeting new people and obviously a great hobby in itself. I loved school. I loved education. Um, I got some very good GCSEs and some A-levels. Just your general youngster, really, like low-level sport. Not a huge amount, but I enjoyed dipping my toes into sports day, a bit of netball. But as I say, I was just One of those horse freaks at school that everyone laughed at, but I didn't care because (laughs) I, I absolutely loved it.
0: And did you have your own horse?
1: So I shared one. I shared one um, in my teenage years. I didn't really have the money. They're ever so expensive. It was always my dream. I was nagging my parents. Oh, get me a horse, please, please, without any understanding of just how much they cost. But (laughs) I used to I used to volunteer at a riding stables and get a free ride at the end of the day. And it was it was lovely in the summer, but not so nice in the winter out with the horses. So I was quite pleased when it was cold. I didn't have to go down twice a day and and tend to
0: got to share the responsibilities.
1: Absolutely.
0: And was was there any competitive element? Were you show jumping or was it just riding or what kind of horse riding? Yes,
1: I've always been a bit of an adrenaline junkie, really. So I used to ride the the craziest of horses that always give me the crazy little ponies that normally chuck me off or sent me flying. But I did do low level competition. We didn't really have sort of the funds to do higher level because with that, sort of level you need sort of the really expensive flashy horses but I was more than happy to gallop around the countryside on on the craziest of horses and often thrown off often yeah jumping competitions you'd see me go for the jump and not the horse sometimes but I loved it it didn't wow. bother me okay
0: did you pick up any injuries like that that sounds pretty dangerous
1: touch wood I didn't and I still haven't because I still am horse riding so I don't want to curse it but I didn't luckily I was quite robust when you're young aren't you? you just bounce yeah. back up and you don't care really
0: yeah, yeah, sure. OK, we'll get into your later, your more recent horse riding a bit later in, in the chat because you were 19 when when the event that we're going to talk about happened to you. W- were you still in education at that point? Tell us what, what you're actually up to at, at that point in your life.
1: Yeah, so I just completed my first year of university. So I went to Royal Holloway University, London, and I was studying psychology. So it was oh, right. the first okay. out of three years. And I just so when I was 19, I just finished my first year when I was um, poorly
0: how did how was it going like your your initial getting into the degree were you enjoying yourself
1: yeah I really enjoyed it I never lived at uni so I never got the full university experience but I kind of wanted to maintain my horse riding and my social life at home alongside studies so I liked the balance really I could go to university and then come home and have quite a normal life on the side so I never had to fully commit of having that student life of being hung over every evening and, and not being able to do anything, which maybe I missed out in some aspects, but in other aspects I'm quite a home bird really. So I, I loved being able to maintain my life on the side as as well as studying.
0: And you live was it is it Guildford that you you, you lived and still live now, Lizzie? Yeah,
1: Guildford in Surrey.
0: And are exactly. you out in the countryside you know where where you actually live
1: We're kind of half and half so we're a bit urban but then we've we're we're quite close to the countryside like to get to the horses it's only about a 15 minute drive so it's quite nice really we've got a bit of the city life but then it's nice to get out in the in the country with the dog and the horses
0: Right yeah yeah oh very nice Okay, so that, let's let's talk about um, what happened to you then. And I know this is, is probably quite a, a difficult thing for you to go back over, so I appreciate you you're agreeing to do that, Lizzie. And obviously, don't expect you to go into any areas you're not comfortable to talk about. But but tell us that 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 evening. I know it started with a meal. T- tell us t- tell us how it began.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm quite an open book now, so no worries about any questions. You can delve as deep as you like. But right, assen- you. essentially, I contracted a, a very rare form of E. coli food poisoning. From a um what is suspected a, ta- a fast food takeaway, but we're not allowed to um identify that because it was never actually proven. Um and essentially the the very rare form of E. coli that I contracted resulted in me being in a three-month coma with multiple organ failure. And very much on the edge of life, it, it was extremely touch and go. So my um whole like cardiovascular system collapsed. I was actually on the register for a double heart and lung transplant at one point, which Gosh. I luckily escaped. So essentially the E. coli, it um It attacks your kidneys, which obviously filter your blood. And once your blood turns toxic, sadly, that travels around your whole body. So it then went on a rampage around my body, sort of attacking all my organs at different stages. That being my heart, my lungs, my eyes, my brain. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, they managed to prescribe me this wonder drug, which... Cost the NHS millions of pounds. I was extremely grateful, and this drug managed to totally reverse um, most of the changes that my immune basically had a faulty immune system from the E. coli. So, let's say your blood goes around on a rampage trying to attack the E. coli, but attacking the rest of your body in the process. Right. So this this wonder drug can reverse the changes, and luckily, with lots of life support and other other forms of keeping me alive, mechanical forms of keeping me alive, most of the of the changes from the E. coli were reversed. However, i I'd soon learned that when you are in that kind of state, your body, it can neglect your senses. So it's it's the least of your con- your body's concerns, your senses. it wants to it wants to get your, your your vital organs better when you're poorly. So sadly, these this toxic blood sat behind my eyes and it starved my retina and optic nerve of oxygen. So it ended up with my retina detaching and it ended up with me suffering from optic, optic nerve atrophy. So essentially, like the visual part of my system, which connects my eye to my brain, sends the light from my eye to the brain, mm-hmm. is totally defunct now. It doesn't work. Um, mm-hmm. So no signals can pass through. So I actually awoke from the three-month coma, totally blind. Um, my sight totally gone. I've got the tiniest bit of light perception at the top of one of my eyes, but it really serves no purpose. It it, it doesn't help me with anything. In fact, sometimes it's it's more frustrating, if I'm honest.
0: Really? Okay. So, Okay. Yeah, so- I was going to ask you because on the podcast, we obviously have people with, with sight loss at, at different levels and blindness is a spectrum, as we know, and, and everyone has a slightly different amount of light sensitivity left, etc. So, so that's interesting to, to hear about yours. Just to go back slightly, Lizzie, with, with the food poisoning, obviously much of what you've just described, you had no knowledge of because you, you, you were not conscious. But when and how did you first realise something was going wrong in your body and how quick was, th- was that process
1: see this is a strange question that people always ask me because again your body has a very clever way of like protecting you from harmful memories so I've actually mm. lost a lot of memory from 2017 from when I lost my sight and right. was poorly so what I'm telling you now is just accounts from my story so as I say I've got no record in my head of what happened because I've lost all of that memory but essentially from what I understand it, it started with a very bad upset stomach extreme mm-hmm. stomach cramps I went to the doctors where I was told um, you know it will pass it's just a tummy bug to which I believe it got excruciating and my mum took me up to A&E in which they they done the tests and and from there I went very quickly downhill I started to go very delusional sort of talking nonsense not knowing where I was and they actually had to I was falling into my own coma but they had to put me in an artificial coma because the only way my body could potentially have the chance of fighting this E. coli and repairing itself was if it didn't have to function in any other form so it's the best way for you to heal the trouble is 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 being in a three-month coma is is detriment in in many other ways because Mm -hmm. I mean I'm very I'm very slight now I'm only about eight and a half stone now but I went down to about five stone I lost all my muscle mass so when they woke me from the coma, I I couldn't just not see, I had to learn to walk again, I couldn't even lift my head up when they first woke me up, because you imagine someone laying stationary for three Mm -hmm. months, like, with very poor nutrition, I was being peg fed, Um, I was also mechanically ventilated, so there's a huge risk of of it affecting your vocal cords, Um, luckily I I escaped all of that, and I, I could speak absolutely fine, but it was, it was strange because when I woke from the coma, I thought, goodness me, I need a drink. And they wouldn't even let me drink because I hadn't used my throat for three months. So right. it was so many little things that I hadn't even considered because I was blissfully unaware that my poor parents went through absolute hell. You know, they were told on several occasions the whole family needed to come up and say goodbye to me. They had to sign paperwork saying, you know, X, Y and Z could happen with this treatment. They had to take so many risks on my behalf. And I'm extremely grateful for their bravery because a lot of the... um. One forms of the mechanical support I was on was called extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, mm-hmm. which is essentially where you have an artificial balloon pump put in your heart. So your heart doesn't even have to pump for itself. And then blood is taken from one of your thighs, oxygenated and put back into the other side. So literally your, your respiratory system has to do nothing. So your whole body can just repair itself.
0: Wow. And with, okay. with this,
1: you run a huge risk because you basically concentrating all your oxygenated blood from your core upwards so mm-hmm. your legs can lose blood supply so they had to sign forms to say that I could lose limbs but do you know what in those situations you just have to take the risk don't you because it's it's a life or death situation really and the the ultimate part of all of this is is it wasn't ever even on the doctor's minds that my sight could go. They didn't even pay attention. I mean, my brain scans were showing changes on my brain, mm-hmm. which have reversed now, so I'm I'm not affected by that. But mm-hmm. they actually, when I woke from the coma and, and said I couldn't see, they were most shocked because it was one of the last things that they had considered. And with best respect, it's one of their last concerns because when you're dealing with a failing heart and lungs, somebody's sight to them, sadly, isn't as valuable because your sight doesn't keep you alive it's very important and it's an awful sense to lose. But if you want the chance of surviving, that's not their priority.
0: That's so interesting, isn't it, in terms of we we see sight as so fundamental to going about our lives but but when it comes to survival it's it's way down the pecking order and it's something you wouldn't normally think about
1: no I mean I mean by by no means the hospital done the most incredible job they didn't neglect my sight but I just don't I mean you you wouldn't know if somebody's gone blind when they're in a coma anyway you'd have to wait till they're woke but the the funniest part was is that they they were extremely surprised about the sight that was one of the last things they thought Mm. would go and as you say it's it's one of the most important things it's your sort of opening to the world isn't it your sight Mm. so yeah it's crazy
0: you mentioned there waking up from the coma i think it's a difficult thing for anyone to to even imagine going through you mentioned being thirsty but what what exactly was it do you remember waking what what actually went through your head at that moment
1: so this is another thing that i'm actually quite grateful for so when when i first came out of the coma i was still like heavily sedated so they were mm. they were lessening the sedation they actually said that I was on the sedation for like a 15 stone man because my body was so strong trying to fight the sedation wow. so they had to I was thrashing about and I was confused I didn't know where I was I didn't know what had happened so I actually what's really nice is I can't remember the exact point where I thought I can't see which to me would be the most distressing for someone with sight loss
0: mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. The, the first sort of memories I mean I was so poorly and so lethargic and so lacking energy that it kind of Whilst laying in a hospital bed, it was kind of the least of my concerns. I was just a bit bewildered by the whole situation. But it kind of, it crept in as as I got a bit better in hospital and they wanted me to shower, things started to become difficult. And I started to think, goodness me, how am I going to function without my sight? But it kind of, it was a gradual realisation, which helped me instead of just waking up at home, God forbid, and and losing your sight, which some people unfortunately have to experience. It was Mm -hmm. a very different experience for me, actually.
0: Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. And did did you sort of know what had happened to you? I mean, was it did it take a while to come to terms with actually what what on earth was going on?
1: Yeah, so I kind of, as I say, I still had a long hospital stay after I awoke from the coma and the information was kind of drip fed to me over (laughs) the next few. I never quite realised, I still don't think I'll ever quite realise how poorly I was or appreciate how poorly I was and how lucky I am actually even to be sat here talking now. Mm -hmm. But as the years have gone by, I've I've been told more and more because the information is quite distressful. Like, as you say, it's, you know, parents were signing forms, basically signing my life away, but they were all just so relieved that I was alive. So whilst they were gutted about the sight loss and and I was extremely devastated, it didn't quite kick in until I came home and needed to start completing tasks, doing things independently. Because whilst you're in hospital, you're very looked after. You're very much in the comfort of your own bed. Food's brought to you. You're taken to the toilet. So it wasn't such a hindrance until I needed to be more independent. And then it started to kick in.
0: Right. Okay. Yeah. And so you, you were in a coma for two months. How long until you were allowed to leave hospital?
1: So I wake from the coma. I haven't got all the dates roughly. I think it was three or four weeks. So they wanted me to come home for Christmas. Right. Um, and also the rehabilitation specialist said coming home would be the best thing for me because in hospital they were teaching me how to walk again. But all I could do is go up and down the corridor, whereas once you come home, you have to walk up the stairs. You have to get in your own bed. So it was it would all help me to become more independent and kind of rehab. Because aside from the sight loss, I was physically in a very bad shape, so yep. although I needed to walk, now being guided by someone, that wasn't the issue. It was actually even just moving my legs was the issue because I was so poorly still.
0: Okay, so yeah, getting you home was a was a priority on sort of yes. m- multiple levels. Um, but before we get there, I must ask about your horse coming to visit you in hospital.
1: Listening. Yeah, so this was crazy. So basically, they wanted to do something for me in the hospital that would make me smile. And this was really crazy. So, I've got a friend from our old horse stables, and it wasn't my actual horse that came up. It was a horse from the Riding for the Disabled, so a very safe, trustworthy horse. Uh Um, And my family roughly briefed me on it because they didn't want to really scare me at the thought of it. Because (laughs) you know, who would imagine that a horse would come to a thirteenth floor of a London hospital? I mean, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. So they had they had to get it past um, this hospital sort of not security, but hospital standards. And I, I think the hospital believed it was like a small Shetland pony, you know, your small little horse. This was a big horse with like the big fluffy feet. It was a big cob. They're called these horses. So it wasn't small by any stretch. Right. Anyway, so I was roughly warned. But I just thought, again, in my head, I just thought, well, that's not going to happen. Like, I'll go along <laughs> with it. OK. But they, the hospital allowed it all because, you see, horses aren't meat eaters. So the actually infection risk of a horse coming to the hospital is less than a dog. Ah, interesting. which is strange you wouldn't you wouldn't yeah. think that but it was anyway so this was all happening without me knowing apparently the the horse box turned up and parked in the ambulance bay at the bottom of the hospital and in the horse walks and and dad was accompanying the the lady with the horse and um they got it into the lift the horse went into the lift of the 13th floor <laughs> but they they had to put him in a um in a patient lift for beds right because he's so big and so yep. heavy
0: Anyway, so dad
1: was, dad was telling me the story and he says that the horse, they get the horse into the lift and in the lift, you've got this lift attendant, which is probably thinking what the hell is happening? No idea what's <laughs> happening. And dad says that, so they they pressed floor 13, which was my my blood ward mm-hmm. and someone else obviously intercepted the lift on the way up. The <laughs> lift stops at floor five, I think it was. And dad said that the door's open and you've got a patient there all gowned up going for <laughs> surgery. All the, all the doctors stood around them, right? And the doors open and they've just got a horse's bottom looking at them. <laughs> and he said the faces on because these people, no one knew the horse was coming because they didn't want to spread it around the hospital because it would have caused unnecessary attention. Right. And he said, the faces on these doctors and this patient, they must have thought they were hallucinating. <laughs> and with that, they close the door and the horse comes up to the next level and they park it up in this room. And they took me into in to see this horse and I had to walk there. And it was it was really hard work to even walk a few meters. Like my legs, they felt like lead, but yeah. I kind of found this inner strength because I just couldn't believe what was happening. And then they took me into the room. and I obviously couldn't see this horse, but it was like the most familiar smell. And it was just really comforting because it was like a, a home comfort. Yeah. And this horse, it had all tinsel wrapped around his neck, bless him, because <laughs> it was Christmas. And he just stood there like he'd done it all his life, on the 13th floor of a London high-rise hospital. And they actually... um. They actually believe it would have been a Guinness World Record, but there wasn't an invigilator there. Do you know what the, the best thing to come from that? It was a very strange experience. And and I was sort of stroking this horse, thinking, sort of smile, sort of, because I just, I was really bewildered by it all. Yeah. But what's so lovely is that I was really, really sick in that hospital. Like, as I say, it was touch and go. But mm-hmm. now, whenever I go up there for my yearly checks, I'm known as the girl who had the horse visit her, not the really poorly girl. And it's a really nice, like, contrast yeah. of, of how most people are known, because hospitals are horrible places, aren't they? No one yeah. likes them. They help yeah. us but we're all a bit worried about them they're all a bit negative and there was newspaper articles that went around and, and that one horse brought so much joy to so many people on that day and it it kind of lifted the spirits for Christmas so it's it's really like it's like my fondest memory of that hospital which I think's the best way to be really when you think how negative it all was really for me in my yeah. mind there.
0: yeah that's incredible yeah. so it was it was that Christmas it was shortly after that I guess that you actually were were discharged were allowed to go home for christmas 2017 is that right
1: that was it yeah literally i think it was a couple of days before christmas i finally got home
0: wow okay what a, a christmas present what was that that like i mean those initial days of yeah. getting home I'm sure must have been difficult
1: it was terrifying i i kind of had this naive assumption in my head that when i left the hospital like the outside world would be a bit brighter and yeah. I'll be able to see things a bit better. And I, it was very naive. I mean, I don't know if it was a coping mechanism, mm-hmm. but I sort of thought all the time I was cocooned in the hospital. I thought, well, it's dingy in here, like there's nothing going on. I thought when I get to the outside world, I'll kind of I'll be able to see a bit more. And I I sort of left the hospital for the first time and they, I, we got a taxi home. And it was absolutely terrifying stepping out of the hospital because I don't know why I expected to be able to see more, but I couldn't see anything more. And in fact, it was scary because you had cars, you had all these really loud noises, and I suddenly couldn't verify what the noises were. So you'd have a big bus going past, you'd have someone walking past you. And I hadn't had to experience that because in my little hospital room on the ward, I was just really protected. And like, everyone that came up to me would say who they are, they'd introduce themselves. Whereas once you get to the outside world, you're just another person with sight loss, sadly, aren't you? And and it's often unrecognisable sight loss. So People often, you know, they're walking quite past, quite close to me as they walk past, and then I had to get into the taxi, and I thought I've got to navigate. You know, my dad was obviously helping me, but it just—I don't know why—I had this assumption in my head that when I got outside, everything would be a bit brighter and easier. But actually, it was really overwhelming, like sensory rise, extremely overwhelming.
0: Right. Yeah. No, I know. am I'm, I'm, I'm sure. So, you you arrived home, and I guess you you as you say, you're sort of suddenly just thrust back into life, but circumstances extremely changed I mean and psychologically that must have been quite overwhelming and I guess exhausting as well at the same time
1: yeah so I got home and it I think that's when it finally sunk in when I got home I thought goodness me what am I going to make in my life now like I'm in hospital I just felt protected from the outside world I felt like you know I felt like this isn't real life wait till I get home and I came home and, you know, even getting up the stairs was hard work. And to be honest, where I was physically so, so poorly still, I did spend the next few months just rehabilitating on the sofa. So, again, it kind of the sight loss kind of hit me in stages. So when I first came mm. home, I thought, oh, this is scary. And then my life at home was very limited. So I'd just lay on the sofa I didn't need to get up in the kitchen and get myself a drink because people would help me. You know, if I needed a hand up to toilet, someone would help me. I was, I was, again, I was very protective because I needed that assistance and I -hmm. wasn't well enough to be doing things or going out yet. So again, I didn't have to really experience the big wide world for a while due to being poorly still. Mm -hmm. So again, it, it kind of came in waves. So it hit me when I got home and then I was all right for a bit. And then when you start to feel better, life moves on, you need to start to go out and about. It hits you again. And I feel like that's the thing with sight loss is that there's constant new hurdles to face, however far along you are in your sight loss journey.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, for most people so far for this podcast we've spoken to have had genetic forms of sight loss, which has been gradual. I mean, at at varying rates, but but most people have sort of had some time to adapt and make changes in their lives to cope with it, to learn how to get around, etc. But for you, this is this is completely sudden isn't it so that I guess is a is a profounder hurdle to, to to overcome you've got so much to deal with all at once
1: yeah it's it's difficult isn't it because I often I often when I meet people with sight loss like you say generally it's genetic or mm-hmm. something that someone's been prepared for but I don't think there's there's an easier way to face sight loss because it was all thrown at me at once But then I think, I often think with somebody who's got a sight loss condition, they can, yes, they can gradually adapt, but they've got that emotional stress of thinking my sight might be worse next year. Whereas unfortunately with me, it was taken from me and that was it. Mm -hmm. I I then didn't Mm -hmm. have to think, right, this could deteriorate because it was, it was taken in one shot. So I think both ways equally as distressing, but I don't think there's, there's an easier way of, of tackling it. I mean, as you say, it was all thrown on me at once and it was, it was very much a sink or swim situation. I, I had no choice but to, To learn, learn the new ropes of living without my sight.
0: Right, yeah. It sounds like you were you were pretty sort of courageous in 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 taking the bull by the horns and 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 getting out there. Did 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 it feel like fear was was holding you back, or was the? I guess boredom must start to be a factor as well. If you're sort of limited to to your home, and you must start to want to start getting getting out and about. How did that sort of play out what was the what was the balance there
1: yeah you're very right so I did start to get itchy feet so once I started to feel better physically in myself I naturally wanted to start to wander out and about and I did I, I would say I was a bit scared but I mean I'll admit this now I almost felt a bit embarrassed i didn't want to ask for help i didn't want to be that person that looks like they're going to walk into something that person that puts their cup down and misses the table Mm -hmm. and it was it was incredibly difficult for my friends um, adapting as well because they'd come around and i think they sort of thought i'd be a different person i said look i'm the exact same lizzie i said i just can't see anymore and it was hard because they wanted to help me but they didn't want to mother me because Mm -hmm. being 19 you're an adult you've experienced Mm -hmm. life with sight you've been independent i've driven a car Mm-hmm. I've been to uni. I've I've done everything. So mm-hmm. it was it was this fine margin of I had this thought in my head of I didn't want people to feel sorry for me. So I was sort of determined to make, make out as if I knew what I was doing. And then I just had to accept, no, you need help, you need guidance, you need to learn. Like this is this is a huge lifestyle change. Like nobody is you can't overcome sight loss on your own you need help and you need support and people need to realize you need to accept that help because a lot of people think I mean I'm quite a bold independent person so it really hurt my pride a bit actually if people have Mm -hmm. to help me with everything and even to tell me that there's a step in front of me or I'm about to walk into something originally I used to sort of think why are you telling me telling me that but now it's with the best intentions that people support you.
0: Yeah, no, it's very familiar to me. Um, I can't see anything at all after dark and it's familiar relying on people and getting them to point out steps and things and you you do at times catch yourself. Yeah, I don't know, I mean, worrying about that and feeling like you're going to be a burden on someone, even though that's not what's going through their mind at all, I'm sure. but uh, Well, you've, yeah.
1: you've hit the nail on the head there. So I had this fear of being a burden because, as I say, I was just fiercely independent when I could see, and I like to be fiercely independent. So I think my coping mechanism when I first lost my sight is to keep my circle very small. So mm-hmm. i was very selective on what friends I saw. I was very selective on who I went out with. I'd always make sure I'm with a family or a friend that I really trust, that I didn't feel like I was that I owed it to them for helping me. You know, Mm. I I just wanted to be independent. Yeah.
0: How did that sort of evolve? Have you, have those same friends that you kept close, are they the the people still around you now, Lizzie?
1: Yeah. So my sort of confidence and independence, this really leads on to sport, actually evolved mainly through sport. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when I first got out of hospital, I kind of thought to myself, like I could go one of two ways here. I could sit at home and feel really sorry for myself and make nothing for my life. Or I can try and achieve something that actually I probably wouldn't be doing if I had my sight um so I thought to myself I need a goal because my life at that time seemed really bleak you know I could have listed I I lost my driving license that was a huge blow for me I lost the ability to go to university independently I'd lost my boyfriend I'd lost a lot of things which were really close to me and I thought I need to I need something to aim towards here to give myself a new sense of achievement it might be a different sense of achievement to what I might have originally been doing if I could see but I just thought I need a goal and I actually achieved that through sport that's how I kick-started my kind of confidence and getting myself out there
0: oh that's really interesting so what was your first step towards sport into sport
1: so my first step was I set myself a target of completing our local park run which is five kilometers now I done my first park run I believe in the summer of 2018 so you're only looking at about 6 months from coming out of hospital that's and incredible con- yeah I mean considering I had to learn to walk again I mean this this was not flashy the park run it must have taken <laughs> about 45 minutes it was more walking than running and I was actually sick at the end it it took so much out of me I threw up at the end but do you know what I thought I said to dad I said I want to get quicker and quicker every week and I set my set my goal I like, actually I believe I got down to doing a 26 minute park run eventually that wow. year so I kind of just really stuck at it and then from there I'm the kind of person that I do one thing and I just want more and more so I ended up you know fast forward six months I signed myself up for the London Marathon in 2019 um,
0: wow okay before we get there Lizzie I mean I've done some guide running with 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 blind runners yeah and it all what strikes me is is the level of trust they have to have in you and the courage wondering what it was like that first ever I'm sure it wasn't an actual park run it was a, a practice but what was that like those those first initial runs was that a it must have taken a bit of overcoming of fear to actually get started didn't it
1: yeah it was rather scary and I did not adopt the general um blind running technique of having a tether I actually linked my ah. dad's arm because you get more support if you're okay. a bit wobbly because yep. like, I'd only just lost the sight and because I wasn't that strong physically I kind of linked his arm because then you've got someone holding you yep. up mm-hmm. however that obviously really affects the running motions it does make it harder yeah and it was it was scary, but I did do it with my, my dad, who I trust the most, not sure. to let me stack it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? I, I probably did trip a few times and stumble, but it, it didn't bother me because it's I, had my, I was so set on what I wanted to achieve. Yeah. I just thought, well, do you know what? If I take a trip or, or a tumble, so what? And I actually did once on the canal, someone mm-hmm. came running towards us the other way and we had to move to the side and I nearly went down. But actually on other occasions, I've held dad up when it's been muddy and he's gone to trip so it works in both ways so that was basically the the technique
0: (laughs) and so hang on a minute does this mean your dad had to also get faster and faster every week
1: oh my poor dad the the fitter i got he couldn't (laughs) keep up he was he was absolutely dying running but it was fantastic for him because he loved doing it with me because what you've got to remember is he went through so much when i was poorly that i didn't Mm. have to experience the emotional trauma so he really got something from it like seeing me start to achieve again and helping me to do that
0: so you must have loved running quite, you know, early on, straight away almost, to to sign up to the to run the London Marathon so, so soon after getting started.
1: Yeah, I, I did love it. It just gave me this, like, again, a sense of achievement. It just gave me this, like, surge of adrenaline that I just, I felt like I'd achieved something. And I kind of, it was nice to get outside with the fresh air. And I, I started to, I sort of learned when I lost my sight, that I need to embrace my other senses. Right. So even things like getting out for a run and like hearing the birds or feeling the wind brushing against you. It makes you feel alive when you live such a, uh, sometimes I kind of feel without being able to see like a little bit trapped when everything's right. dark.
0: Uh-huh. But when you
1: can feel those other senses, it kind of connects you with your sort of outside environment. And it, it kind of helps me to forget the fact I can't see. It's, it's, you can never forget you can't see, but you can focus on other things to take your mind off of it.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And if you're doing something where vision is not holding you back, then then you, yes it, it does feel less less important doesn't it so yeah and your guide then was was your friend Millie is that right
1: yeah one of my best friends so she was with me like throughout I was really good friends of her and I could see and she was she was one of those people that really stepped up when I lost my sight and when I first couldn't see she'd take me out for the day and, and then we started going to the gym together then we and then we done the running yeah
0: yeah yeah amazing and you know other other visually impaired and blind people I've spoken to said that when when you go through sight loss you you do find out who your who your real friends are the people who stick by you the people who can deal with it emotionally and, and so on has that been a, pro- a process that you've you've experienced too
1: absolutely and and all my friends have been absolutely fantastic I mean not one of them didn't step up they all they were all a bit concerned to start with as I said earlier like they didn't really know how to act around me um, right. but they all, all soon got very used to it and now it's we just act like normal
0: yeah just, yeah. just carry on like normal and uh, I mean you, you leapt into running very quickly Lizzie but I'm also aware that sort of your day-to-day mobility w- was another challenge sort of quite separate that, that you you had to start to to get to grips with what what was that like did you have support from did you start using a, a, a cane and get training tell us tell us a bit about the you know the, the day-to-day mobility
1: yeah so when I first came out of hospital I'd say for the actually it's only a quite a recent thing that I've come to terms with but when I first got out of hospital for a good few years I was adamant that I just wanted to link on to someone to get around mm-hmm. I wanted help I felt secure and I also had this like assumption in my head that it wasn't as obvious that I couldn't see if I was just holding on to someone's elbow whereas mm-hmm. if I were using a cane it kind of it's obvious you couldn't see and I kind of I had this fear of using a cane and it it kind of it, amounted, it got worse and worse after losing my sight because I sort of had this picture in my head of I didn't want to look vulnerable. Again, mm-hmm. I I say I, I like to be quite a bold person. I didn't want to look vulnerable. And Actually, it's probably only in the last year that my perception of, of using a cane has changed because through all my sport, I've met lots of different para-athletes who do use these mobility aids and I actually completely changed my mindset. And whenever I sort of hear of someone using a cane, I find it really empowering. I think, well, good mm. for you getting around on your own and, and not relying on other people. So it's actually, um, I've recently signed up my local sight loss charity to start with cane training, which is a big step for me because they've been pestering me for years and I've been putting it off right. saying I'm, I don't want to do it. I've actually thought to myself now, if I can get the train independently or if I can get around independently, that's much better for my own self than constantly having to rely on someone because it's, it's hard work, like relying on someone guiding you the whole time. Like I kind of I want to be independent now. And I, it's it's a really nice feeling that my mindset's totally changed, but it has taken a lot of time for me to get over that that kind yeah. of idea in my head.
0: Well, you're you're absolutely not alone every single guest that I've spoken to has got has gone through that it's I'm going I have to use a cane at night myself and it's not been a fast process for anyone that sort of worry about how you're perceived yeah. feeling vulnerable whatever it is and I think it's a really complicated thing to to explain isn't it and come to terms with but it's great to hear that you've you've got there and you're now you now are feeling like it's this empowering tool that helps you to do all the things you you want to do and it's always great to to hear about people when they when they get to the, to that point
1: the only difficult part of that is is that it seems to be charities do the main training mm-hmm. which there's huge waiting lists for which I was a bit disappointed by i think i must have been waiting for 3 or 4 months now which is holding me back really now you'd think it's in the government's best interest to get people independent and get out working and, and on their own otherwise you have to rely on others don't you so that's my only concern that i it looks like i might have to pay someone to do the training instead of go through a charity
0: Right okay yeah additional. oh gosh that's poor isn't it mm. given it doesn't seem like an expensive thing to to provide does it really? No not at all. Uh,
1: but anyway I'm excited to get cracking with it I really am because I think it'll be my first step to, to potentially getting the train um, so I can go to different sporting venues and, and just not having to rely on parents all the time and just be a bit more independent really.
0: Yeah yeah no absolutely so in terms of sport and how it developed for you then lizzie london marathon sounds like it was a, a a great success how did you then find cycling
1: yeah so the london marathon kind of kick-started my like sporting desire and it it worked i found that sport worked as a perfect outlet for me to to kind of get myself out there and set myself the goals and, and feel a sense of achievement because like i said i had to kind of change what my my perception of my sense of achievement because it For now, it wasn't going to be going to university because it wasn't possible at the time. I had a lot of skills to learn before I could go back to university. So I kind of threw myself into the sport and I came across a Talent ID Day with British Cycling in the September of 2020. Okay. So this is basically just... um. A day you attend where they put you through some testing on a stationary bike just to, to identify if you may have any potential to move on to their foundation programme where they'll then develop you into a paracyclist with the hope of attending a Paralympic Games in the future.
0: OK, but had you already tried tandem cycling at that point?
1: So I'd been on, um, we went to the New Forest with my family about a year before and I jumped on a tandem, um, just a higher one, and we rode around the New Forest, which I really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. But I hadn't necessarily thought of getting into cycling. I I enjoyed it, but I didn't know that there was an opportunity to get into tandem cycling so competitively until I came across this opportunity of British Cycling. I, I went to the um the ID day just with a really open mind because I'd, I'd ridden a bike when I was younger, but never um been hugely into it. I'd always enjoyed it, you know, riding around my friends when you're young, but it'd never been something I'd paid a huge amount of attention to. And I didn't know if I had had any potential, but it was a it was a really big step for me going to that talent ID day because I never forget, I turned up um, with my dad and I was instantly taken away from him by one of the coaches and taken down to the bottom of the velodrome where the testing was. Mm. And that was the first time that I'd been in the company of someone who I'm not familiar with, guiding right. me and assisting me. Mm. And I was quite proud of myself really because people don't realize how quite terrifying that is because the person that you're with, whilst they were very understanding and they're used to dealing with para-athletes, I I didn't know them. I didn't necessarily trust them, and sort of socially and mentally, it, it was a huge. It was it was a bit of a shock to me. But I just took the bull by its horns, and I thought, you know what, I need to show here that I can be independent, because what good is it if you need to be with someone you know all the time when you want to compete in international sport and travel the world?
0: Well, wow, okay, so that was already in your mind. You you it sounds like you yeah. already had that quite ambitious uh mindset that dream of where you hope things
1: yeah, might be able to go I don't do things by half so I thought <laughs> if I'm going to go for this I'm going to go all out you know first impressions and everything like... yeah.
0: and so what did the tests involve and 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 so did you immediately have the sense that, that you you were doing quite well in them or, or tell tell us what sort of happened next
1: so they took us down to the Velodrome where they had sort of a line of stationary bikes for all the participants to do a series of what's called power tests on. Mm-hmm. So they had done a six second test, a one minute test and a three minute test. And what they were looking at is the watts of power that you're producing on the bike. Yeah. And obviously they were looking to see where you're at now. Obviously, I've had, never had any cycling training and they can obviously then forecast where you could be in three years time. Uh-huh. I um, I had no idea if I'd achieved or not but I was just enjoying the experience actually I kind of felt like I felt proud of myself even for something so trivial as as doing it on my own and and I thought this is a great step for me and I I enjoyed it as I say I had absolutely no idea if if I were any good or if they were impressed with what I was doing
0: and they obviously were but how soon after did you did you hear that news that you that you'd put out the powers that that they they were looking for
1: so I think it was a few weeks later, I got a phone call and I was asked to join the um, Great Britain Paracycling Foundation team, oh. which is um, a team of new cyclists where they set you training to do from home on a stationary okay. bike. And then we kind of meet up every few months as a group and we practice in the velodrome. And it's just like your sort of start start of your coaching for to become hopefully a successful paracyclist.
0: Wow. Okay, that must have been exciting. Getting that news and and feeling that process was was yeah. underway.
1: I never forget. Um, they dropped a they lent me a stationary bike and a turbo to train on at home because I had nothing. I had none of the equipment. I didn't have a clue what was involved. Right. And I never forget. My mum saying, "Oh, you know, British Cycling vans turned up, and it, it all seemed a bit real." <laughs> and I was still, at this point, I, ha- I had no clue where the journey was going to take me because you don't know in sport. It's um, it's you've got highs and you've got lows, haven't you? You, you could look like you have potential but it might not materialize so I was always very like realistic but optimistic about the whole process and I just thought I'll take this in my stride and see where it takes me.
0: And how hard was that initial training that they set you were were they quite sort of quite brutal sessions that you had to start, start doing?
1: It started off not easy but it started off I remember my first training session I was set 30 minutes And at the time, I thought, goodness me, that's a long time. And now my rides are probably about three hours. So you look at the comparison of the training, it, it has ramped up. It never gets easier, you just get better. So the training constantly gets harder and harder, but your numbers get better and better. And to me, I I would never want the training to be easy because if you want results, you need to really work hard, don't you? And I just, I remember the the first few months of my cycling at home, I'd get off the bike and there'd be two puddles on the floor of sweat because it it hit me really hard because whilst I was quite fit for the marathon, that's nothing compared to five days a week of training at home and two days a week in the gym. Like it's a huge comparison
0: and initially i guess it was 2020 was it so when did you next because i'm sure i'm thinking now covid must have hit around the same time when did you sort of realize that you were on track and that that you know british cycling was seeing the data that they needed to see to to actually get you into some competitions
1: well i actually done my first competition in april 2021 it was a road race in belgium okay and i kind of felt encouraged by that because That was at the time when COVID was still around and Mm -hmm. they weren't taking the whole squad away. They were only taking a select few people. I thought, well, I've been given this opportunity. They obviously think I've got potential. Right. And we came fourth in the time trial and sixth in the road race. So that was a great start. Although it then was the Paralympics in 2021. And obviously I was way too, way too new to be competing Uh in the Paralympics. So everything then did go really quiet for about a year it kind of just allowed me to get my head down. It was nice because I'd had a taste of some international competition. It kind of given me the the drive and the bug for it. And it kind of made me work hard. Well, really hard. And then 2022, I had an opportunity to ride with one of the elite pilots on the squad. So the person on the front of the tandem is called a pilot and the person on the back is called a stoker. Uh I had an opportunity to ride with one of our um really successful pilots at a track world championships in October in 2022 so last year that was right and um there is where I I won my first silver medal actually which was incredible like I, I didn't see it coming so I I was really really I was totally buzzing from that and that was when I started to think oh I might be getting somewhere here yeah
0: wow incredible that was sure that wasn't the first track racing you'd done this it was you must have so I, I
1: yeah I'd done a um I've done a national track race okay. um, at the start of 2022 and I've done one in 2021 but they are they aren't on the level of international competition they are fantastic don't yeah. get me wrong but you don't get that kind of um, you're not quite as nervous and it's not exactly the same experience it is fantastic training don't get me wrong but nothing compares to like world-class international competition where you get a taste of that like you just want more and more really
0: that must have just felt incredible to win a, your first medal like that, and your your you know your first big competition. Uh, yeah, what was um, that like?
1: Yeah, well, all my family managed to come, and my grandparents because it was only Paris, right? So it was just like I don't actually think it sunk in for a few weeks. Like at the time, <laughs> I just kind of like stood on the podium and rolled with it, um, but afterwards like it sunk in and it, it kind of it keeps you pushing when you have those hard training sessions and like you've got the medals hung up next to you I kind of sometimes just remind myself this is what you're doing it for like it all pays off
0: and then you you were you were marked as a confirmed talent by that point did things sort of start happening even sort of thicker and faster after that
1: yeah so then at the start of this year i was selected to do all of the road racing season again with the same pilot i rode with um for the track competition last year okay and i came away with three bronze medals across three road races which was a good achievement again because the road racing is quite a different um different experience with the track racing it's it's not predictable but there's far less variables for the track racing they're only sort of like two or three minutes long the races yeah um and it's just you on the track generally whereas with the road racing it's it's quite tactical um it there's a lot more variables that come into play with the road racing which makes it exciting but you can't always quite put yourself where you think you might come in the field it's sometimes you might surprise yourself other times you might be a bit disappointed there's there's way more highs and lows in in the road racing which is nice because you should always be on the edge of your seat I think when when you're competing like you should always always be second guessing because it, it keeps you pushing
0: you know similar to what we talked about with with the guide uh in, in running and the level of trust um involved there I guess even more so with cycling given the the speeds and the, the greater risks of crashing and so on you must have absolutely. to absolutely I mean have... giving like you so much trust there to, to what what was that like in terms of building the relationship with your with your pilot
1: yeah of course you have to trust them hugely I mean the speed you get up to on the tandem like with the two of you pedaling downhill yeah. goodness me I, I dread to think some of the top speeds but <laughs> it's, it's very thrilling but yeah you have to build a real relationship with your pilot because you actually spend a lot of time with them off the bike as well as on the bike so when you travel for competition right. they are they are there to guide you and support you off the bike in the hotel for dinner so you need to build that relationship or that trust because it's it's intense spending two weeks away with anyone, let alone when you're then competing together and the tensions of competing together as well. So you really have to build a, a partnership. And the better the partnership off the bike, the better the partnership on the bike for racing. I actually, so the pilot that I rode with at the start of the year and at the end of last year, I then didn't ride with for our track world championships this year. I rode with a different girl. So it was really nice to get to know her and we actually enjoyed some fantastic success at the um, Para Track World Championships in Scotland this year. So we got a gold and a bronze on the track, which was really exciting to get my first win. Like I feel like that's like the penultimate to to stand on that top podium with the national anthem. So it was really exciting.
0: Yeah, so multiple medals at home world championships. That just must have felt absolutely amazing, didn't it?
1: It's. I remember. I can't remember. I think I was saying it to one of my friends. Like we had a. a uh, it was mixed with the able body, the para competition at this one at this championship. So mm-hmm. it's really exciting. We had full full stadium, and it was one of those like experiences where, yes, I can't see, but the noise and the feeling of the stadium vibrating when we won. Like for a second, I didn't need to see it. Like I could feel it. Right. And it's it's moments like that that make me realise like all the hard work that I've put in is so worth it because yes. I can't see the gold medal. I can't see pictures of myself stood on the top of the podium, but I get to feel it. And I've, I've learned to really enjoy that feeling and really embrace it. Yes,
0: yeah, so it's a real multi-sensory experience that. Uh, I wonder whether also riding a bike must must sort of remind you of horse riding a bit, does it? There must be, some of the sensations are, are kind of similar.
1: Yeah I think I think like, my bravery from horse riding has transferred well onto the bike because yeah in the bike in the um, velodrome on the track you have to come out of the start gate and you both stand up on the bike so two right. people like putting a lot of power through a bike and not you know where if you can if you have a bit of vision it does help with your balance and perception whereas without yeah. any you've got nothing to go off of so it's total trust in that person on the front but then once you get once you get into the race I love it because I just have to focus on myself and I can I almost feel independent because the pilot has control of the bike and I just have to do my job on the back and I don't need my sight for it to do the pedaling and to work really hard.
0: Yeah, because a lot of people probably won't understand what what that experience is is like of be, being on a tandem, Lizzie. In terms of the dynamics and the communication between the the pilot and the stoker, what 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 exactly is going on? I mean, does it does it matter where your body weight is in corners? Does it? I'm sure it matters when you stop and start pedaling. Just tell us a bit about how those dynamics work in a bit more detail, if you would.
1: Yeah. So for the track racing in the velodrome, it's not too much of an issue because you're generally on the track on your own and you're just going around in a big circle and sort of you you need to be in sync with your pilot when you stand out the saddle and and put the power down and when Mm -hmm. you bend around the corners you need to lean the same with them because if i were to lean in more and my pilot weren't to then that could offset the bike and you don't want to come off of the optimum line that you're racing because then that that wastes time yeah there's there's lines on the velodrome that you're to follow we follow the black line if you come off of that that's the quickest line for our race so you don't you don't want to be drifting away because then you're losing time without even putting power down yeah but when you come onto the road a lot more communication is needed because when you stop on the bike you both need to make sure that your foot's going down at the same time yeah and if we're coming up for a corner especially in our time trial races the more you lean around the corners and the better you pedal around them again the quicker you're going to go and the less time you're going to waste so i'd definitely say on a tandem when you're road racing communication is very key and also if if you have absolutely no vision as a stoker on the back of the tandem you need communication from your pilot about what the rest of the field are doing because if someone suddenly goes for an attack and and on the back you're not ready for it and you don't put the power down suddenly you can find yourself at the back of the field very quickly and once right. you drop off from the back of the pack and you don't get the um benefit of cycling within the pack you suddenly it's really hard to catch them so you could find yourself in trouble quite quickly
0: so that communication is is pretty much constant I imagine is it between the between you and your your it's, pilot.
1: Yeah I say on the road it's very constant and also it's quite difficult on the road because you don't want to make your communication too obvious because then other bikes might hear you and, right. and start to hear your tactics so if you wanted to make a break for it you don't really want to hear other bikes hear like <laughs> to, to catch you out because you want to catch them out so you want to suddenly go for it and if if they take a few seconds to react you've suddenly made a gap. So, it's, right. I mean, it's, it's all very new to me, even, even the road racing now, because as I say, I didn't, I didn't ride when I was sighted. So yeah. I've had to learn like the tactics and how to let my pilot get the best out of me for the two of us on the tandem on the road.
0: And and now you're, you I know you've ridden with Amy Cole um, yes. quite a bit. And you now sort of, you have regular riders, do you, that you, you'll you be staying with for, for a while now and, and to keep that relationship building?
1: So I started the majority of my riding with Corrine Hall, who's a very successful um, multiple gold medalist at the Paralympics. Mm-hmm. Um, so I gained some fantastic experience from her because she's just been in, in the job for so long. So she taught me so much on and off the bike. And then for the most recent track world championships, yes, I rode with Amy Cole, who's quite new to piloting. She's much younger. Okay. And it was quite nice because I kind of felt like I could help show her the ropes um, because it was all a bit newer for her. And actually now I've had the exciting opportunity to, um, pending on my medicals and all of the paperwork being completed to actually join the elite program and be funded. Oh, wow. And okay. of which in that position, I will have my own. So, so at the moment, I've just been sort of jumping on with whoever's free to pilot for me. Right. But once I'm funded, I will have a designated pilot that I can train with all the time and really kind of build that solid partnership with and hopefully sort of set bigger goals for us as a combination instead of sort of relying on jumping on with whoever might be free at the time.
0: Yeah, yeah, sure. So, what what's next? Is is Paralympics a prospect now, Lizzie? Is is, is it the, the dream? You know, you sort of uh, aiming very high. What's 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 in the pipeline?
1: Yeah, you've hit the nail on the head. Aiming very high. We never know with the Paralympics. Selection isn't until right 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 before them, so you okay. never you never truly mm-hmm. know. And for the Paralympics, compared to the World Championships, spots are very limited. Right. So, whilst I am a very new member of the team my chances probably are a bit lower, but you never know. And and as I always say, I kind of like that not knowing principle of things because it makes me keep thinking, keep pushing, keep pushing. Like you you know, you want to you need to get the best out of yourself to, to put yourself in the best possible position to be selected. Yeah. But if I'm if I'm not to be, there's still like next year we've got a track world championships in Rio, we've got plenty of road racing. So there's so much to get your your teeth stuck into. I mean, yes, the the Paralympics is the ultimate, but there's loads of other other events to get cracking on with as well in between.
0: Yeah, sure. And how big a part of your life now does it feel like cycling is?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. It, it's become a huge part of my life, and it will it will even more as I continue. But I love it because it's it's really it's given me a purpose, mm-hmm. and I love the training of an evening because. I feel such a sense. I mean, the training is really, really hard, but if I, on my rest days when I don't train, I kind of feel a bit lost. I, oh, what should I do this evening without my training? And it, it, <laughs> it's given me, it's given me structure back into my life, which I desperately lacked when I first lost my sight. Uh-huh. I used to kind of think, oh, what am I going to do next week? Or, or you know, and, and now I've got routine. You know, I've got my gym plan, I've got my training plan. And it's it's very good for your mental well being, like exercise as well, like the hormones it releases, they, they make you feel really good after a good training session
0: yeah no amazing I think I saw another interview with you where you said you you hope to achieve more as a blind person than you ever had as a sighted person I think that people a lot of people would find that quite amazing thinking you know you've got a lot to deal with just to sort of get life back on track learn all the new skills you've got to learn but you you actually have sort of aimed high really quite quite quickly tell us a bit about where where that sort of motivation came from Lizzie
1: I just um <laughs> When I first lost myself, as I say, I did I I will admit, i hands down, I moped around for a few months and I felt really sorry for myself. And I just thought this is absolutely not going to get me anywhere. And I actually I probably never dreamt of thinking that I could become a paid cyclist for Team G B. That that probably was never on the horizon. Right. But I feel like the mindset I adopted left me open for opportunities like that and it was my own hard work that left me in that position and if I you you don't know where life's going to take you do you like no one can predict what's going to happen in five years time but I think personally by adopting that mindset I I put myself in the best possible position to experience opportunities like I've had the pleasure of being able to and I often it's it's really strange because you know I'd take my sight back any day but I often think like I you know when I'm still on the top of that podium like in a strange way I never thought I'd be able to say like some days I quite enjoy my life and I when I first lost my sight I thought I'm never going to be happy again you know all these negative pessimistic thoughts but I have found my happiness and it hasn't been easy and I always stress this like there's been highs there's been lows you know it's it didn't happen overnight either it's taken me a long time to come to terms with my sight loss but I think dipping my toes into like the para para sport world has exposed me to lots of other inspirational people in similar predicaments and it kind of allowed me to accept who I am and what I am now.
0: Yeah that's really interesting isn't it because we, we, there's so much sort of social baggage that comes along with sight loss isn't it something we've spoken about with other guests quite a lot on this this podcast is the way you sort of expressed that was almost like you're holding yourself back from from feeling good like you shouldn't be because there's so much the way that so many people in society see sight loss as People going through that being so defined by what they've lost rather than what they still have. Um
1: yes. I mean there's there's so many like negative connotations of sight loss, isn't there? And don't get mm-hmm. me wrong, it's rubbish. No one wants to experience it. But I feel like I've kind of my journey kind of proves that it's not the end. Sometimes it's the beginning of, of a different life, one that you didn't expect and one that no one would ever want to dream of. But when you're when you're faced with something like this, like you do have two options and actually you can you can in a strange way make something from it and build from it
0: absolutely because you know you end up doing and experiencing so many things that you wouldn't have otherwise found your way to don't you
1: exactly yeah
0: and so what about um other other parts of your life I mean I understand that cycling's quite sort of dominant now is education on hold now for you are you still able to ride horses tell us a, a bit about what else is going on for you
1: yeah that's an interesting question so up to about this year I was still horse riding lots it has had to take the back seat a little bit at the moment I still do it when I have time but obviously cycling is my priority for me now um training six days a week two days a week in the gym if I get the old chance to go horse riding I will but it's not it used to be my priority it used to kind of be a lifestyle for me but right. it has taken a back seat but it naturally has taken a back seat so it didn't bother me but it's an interesting question when you say about education so I very much appreciate like in the sporting world, you're not young and fit forever. So I'm very conscious of still keeping my sort of myself in education or a job on the side. Mm-hmm. Um, so last year I had my first paid role actually, since I lost my sight, it was a six month internship with a local local sort of government run organization that support people with learning disabilities. So it's okay. a six month internship, working from home, um, using accessible technology. I use JAWS, Job Access with Speech, which is keyboard orientated software. So obviously you don't use a mouse because I can't see a thing on the screen. It's just mm-hmm. all all keyboard shortcuts um, to access different areas on the screen. And actually I, I started learning JAWS a few years ago, but once I got the job, my skills really improved within the job because you come across different things on the laptop that you have to find your way around and, and learn different keyboard shortcuts so that six-month role last year was was really interesting it kind of kick-started belief in myself that yes I can work I just need to to learn a different way of working so so I I, I learned a lot about myself through that six-month role that actually I need to be more patient because I've, I've got an awful tendency of being quite impulsive and just getting, right. wanting to get things done really quickly but it kind of it taught me to be more patient in that role. And I actually think sports taught me to be patient as well because you have to wait your turn in sport. There are people that are better than you. You can't just jump straight to the top. It takes a lot of hard work. So I feel like doing these different activities, exposing myself to, as I say, my first paid job or different sport, have actually helped me to understand how to behave with sight loss because sight loss, it, 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 it does affect you mentally as well. As I say, it it, it affects your confidence it affects your ability to retain information. For example, someone calls me up and they say, oh, they give me some information. I can't just jot it down on a piece of paper. I've got to jump onto my laptop and type it out. And I've got to listen to what I'm typing whilst they're telling me. So for example, a phone number I might be given on the phone. You know, most people just jot it down. I have to type it down. So it's it's a whole new way of living. And as I say, like, it's been six years now since I lost my sight, but every year I learn something new about myself. And I I think it's constantly going to be a, a learning curve. Like, However far I get into sight loss, I'm still learning new things about myself and how to how to how to best get around sight loss.
0: You, you mentioned there the the sort of psychological difficulties, Lizzie. And, you know, I'm thinking particularly with with your cycling doing so well, you must get such high highs. And then I, I wonder, you know, once you've had a high like that, does it sometimes hit you when, when you get back home and you've sort of got some of the same challenges are still there without dwelling on the lows what 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 are those some of the, the the more challenging psychological aspects now
1: yeah it's interesting because I think the highs make the lows not so low right. so when I come back from a competition or something I'm absolutely buzzing with all that I've done and then I get stick back into the training but I mean I will I'll, every day I'll experience a low I'll, I'll be totally honest you know I'll go to I'll get frustrated with myself for things that are out of my control I'll put a cup on a on the side and it will spill and mm-hmm. I'll think, oh, why have I done that? Well, I've done that because I can't see. It's not my problem. Or I can't find the remote control to turn the telly off like before we've done this meeting. It's it's and it's little things that I've I've had to really learn to just like not get frustrated with myself for things that are out of my control because yeah. there's nothing I can do about the fact that I can't find something or I've spilt something. Like and sometimes I still get cross with myself, thinking, Oh, you you should have known better. But yeah, I've I've learned ways to adapt. I've I've got better with things. But as I say, I'm I like to I'm sort of like go 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 do do everything at once, and sometimes I just need to remind myself just to slow down and 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 take it take it step by step.
0: The other thing I was wondering about, Lizzie, is sort of perception um, perception of 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 you and how that might have changed, or perception of of visually impaired disabled people more generally, and what's what you've sort of experienced in that sense. I've had other guests on the podcast get. Um, uncomfortable um, a bit resistant to constantly being called inspiring for instance they say you know all right if I've done something really good that warrants being told that great otherwise I don't know it feels like it's a little bit undermined if it, if, the, if the terms used too much is that something you've experienced at all?
1: Yeah I've, I've definitely heard other visually impaired people say things like that and I think it, it comes from the right place when people say that someone's inspiring um but as you say people with sight loss just want to be treated like normal and I've experienced it like I can't even think of an example but I'll do someone something and someone's like, oh you've done that really well it's like yeah that, that's a simple task like everyone can carry out a simple task like that like don't give don't praise me as if I'm a child yeah just it, it's difficult but I think it does come from the right place when people praise or say that people that can't see are inspiring because they just think, you know, fair play, like you can't see what you're doing, yet you're just cracking on with it. But I mean, some people like to lay low and just live their life like normal. But I think other people, other people thrive off being told that they've inspired somebody else. They think they've, yeah. they've. Like, I'd quite like it if I'd made someone else feel like they can achieve something from what I've said. So it's, yeah. it's a fine line between kind of babying someone and yeah. actually awarding them for their own instincts and their own sort of sense of achievement.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I, th- I think I, I agree with you completely there. One thing I was wondering about is, um, I mean, it's been six years now, hasn't it? So it's been it's been a while. Um, How you sort of think about, I guess, perspective um, on life. Do you you think it's changed very much if you when you look back to to pre sight loss and life now? Do you feel like it's changed you as a person?
1: Yeah, I, I think the biggest thing that's changed is I don't take anything for granted. Because mm-hmm. I've realized that life can change in the click of the fingers. Mm-hmm. And I just think you don't know what's around the corner. So enjoy what, what you've got. And, and I try not to, like before what I could see, I'd probably moan about the most trivial things. But now mm-hmm. I think to myself, do you know what? Just crack on with it. Right. Like, you, you know, life's a journey, isn't it? You're going to have yeah. highs, you're going to have lows. But I think it's, it's how you deal with those highs and lows is what, is, is what defines you as a person. And, and also what opens up opportunities for you. You've got to have the right mindset. You've got to be adaptable. You've got to be open to change in order to, to get these exciting experiences. You know, if I didn't pluck up the courage to go to the Talent ID Day, I wouldn't be sat here talking now. Um, and it took a lot of courage to do that. But I had to I had to be open-minded. You know, I, I may well have gone along and, and not been any good for the cycling, but that wouldn't have stopped me. I would have then maybe dipped my toes into para horse riding and, and got more into that yeah it's, it's about being open-minded and and accept of what what's been thrown at you which is very difficult for people with sight loss and it takes time and as I say if if you had done this interview with me five years ago I would have been a totally different person but I'm I'm trying to constantly evolve with what's thrown at me.
0: Yeah no that that's that's fantastic it's so great to see how that's working out so so brilliantly for you um the other question we like to ask at the end Liz is, is if yeah. there were one thing that you could sort of change whether it's in people's attitudes or accessibility what what would that one thing be
1: oh good question I think like you say people's attitudes
0: yeah in, in what particular there is,
1: ways there's just there's there's still this stigma attached to sort of feeling sorry for somebody that can't see people mm. don't want to be pitied people just want to be treated like normal I hate nothing more than if someone fusses over me or or tries to overly help me with something that I'm perfectly capable of doing just because I can't see doesn't mean I can't do it yeah like yes yeah. give me a hand if I look like I'm about to fall down a curb don't get me wrong yeah but don't no one, no one likes to be overly mothered or or treated as if they're younger when actually they might be forty years old and have led a fiercely independent life and be yeah. and be totally capable. They don't want to be treated like someone different. Just treat people like everyone else.
0: Yeah, here, here. Okay, and finally, we like to ask people for a recommendation, Lizzie. So, it can be a podcast, a movie, an album, anything you like. It's just something you've listened to relatively recently that's really left an impression on you.
1: Do you know what? It's not something specific, but it's like my go to. I listen to inspirational speeches on Spotify. Oh, wow. And they, they really, they really, like they're all different. You don't know. I've got an Alexa, so I just ask it and it comes out with whatever. But they okay. kind of, if I'm ever feeling low or need some inspiration, like they really, they really lift me up. And they're short lived, don't get me wrong. Like, whilst you listen to them, you feel fantastic and they might not last <laughs> forever, but they're a good sort of top up. If you're feeling a bit low or, or, or you're a bit concerned about something, I'll always listen to one of those and it really helps.
0: Brilliant. Is there a particular channel on Spotify? Does is, is, is it just sort of randomly pick them for you?
1: It's just it's, It just randomly selects one for you. It's just like a collection of inspirational speeches. You can just flick through them.
0: Great. OK. Love that. <laughs> Brilliant. I think you should be giving one yourself before too long, hopefully
1: oh bless you thank you
0: (laughs) fantastic well i've really enjoyed this chat lizzie so thanks very much
1: no worries thanks um, thanks for being so patient with all the different questions and i hope i didn't stumble up too much it's hard isn't it like you try and get get all the words out and you're like don't mess it up don't mess it up
0: no not at all you were incredibly coherent right throughout you much more so than me so good luck with the upcoming competitions
1: thank you have a nice weekend Yeah.
0: thanks a lot bye for now the amazing Lizzie Jordan thanks to her for talking to us thanks for British Cycling for setting up the interview and yeah I hope you enjoyed that what a great character and yeah horse visits on the NHS that should definitely be a thing if you're listening Health Minister anyway thanks for listening we'll put links in the show notes to British Cycling's limitless programme if anyone wants to have a go at tandem riding why not I might try that myself if you enjoyed the podcast please subscribe, tell your friends about it post about it. Any help in spreading the word, massively appreciated. We'll be back in about a month with the next episode. Until then, take care of yourselves and goodbye.